chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on the fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. I almost titled our sermon this morning, Repent, Lest You Too End Up Without Clean Water. It just seemed like, you know, what as, as this whole thing came along this week with losing our clean water, we have under a boil order, you're not supposed to drink your water out of the tap without uh, boiling it first. And I won't go on and on with all the things that that means, because surely if you haven't heard it yet, you're un, you've, you, you've under a rock or something. It's everywhere that we need to be boiling our water. But what does our lack of clean water say to you? I mean, what, what does... Okay, so we, we understand what's going on a, a little bit. I mean, you know, and you hear all different types of stories of what's going on. But what, what does it communicate to you? What do you think about it really? What are we supposed to, if, we, if we're introspective at all or try to understand life in any sort of meaningful way, what are we to think about when, we, when something, like this, something like this happens, when we lose our clean water. I mean, it certainly isn't a catastrophe at the level that millions deal with on a day-to-day basis. I mean, we still have water in our houses, right? We just have to boil it in order to drink it. We're still extremely fortunate. But it's, it's a bit of an inconvenience, right? So what... It's a, it's a disturbance to us in our common, the way that we live life. And then yesterday morning, the power goes out for like an hour. And it's like, if you've got to boil your water, unless you have an electric stove, then you can't even boil your water. So I don't know. You just go to the puddle out in the yard and drink that, I guess. Um, but what was your, what's your response when something like, something like this happens? There's almost this sort of, I can't believe this is going on. This is ridiculous. It, I mean, I don't know how many times I heard it from so many people and from within myself. I pay a water bill. All these things going on. This is ridiculous. What in the world is going on? Why do we have to boil this water? Come on. There's just this indignation. There's this sense of this isn't, this isn't right. I, I have had clean water coming into my house, well, since forever. Um, we went on rural water way back when I was a kid out on the farm. We've had, I've had clean water from Creston. This is, there's this indignation that kind of comes up with us. It's just not fair. And I'll have to say, it's very interesting that this lined up with the text that I was thinking about all this week and the text that we're speaking on this morning. 
Last week we finished up this really tough chapter, right? Um, Jesus is speaking there about uh, the not bringing peace but division and settling with your judge before you show up and all this, this, this seriousness of these servants who are not ready for the master when he comes and when he shows up, the servants get cut to pieces. I mean, it's, it's very hard stuff all through chapter 12. Well, thankfully, we're switching this week. We're going into chapter 13. It's the same tough stuff, but it's a different chapter. We're switching, we're switching from chapter 12, tough stuff, to chapter 13, more tough stuff. It's a different chapter, but it's very tough. We, we don't really understand, and we don't get a lot of explanation as to why the crowd takes the conversation in this direction. It's, there's no evidence, we don't have any other historical accounts from Josephus or anybody of this event of these Galileans whose, Pilate, whose blood Pilate mingles with their sacrifices. But it's, it's interesting the place that it comes to us here in Luke. We're coming off of this judgment, this settling with your accuser, this, um, this getting ready for your master to come. And it's almost as if someone in the crowd is like, um, they hear all this judgment. Jesus is speaking, judgment is coming. Get ready, get ready. The master is on his way. Settle with your accuser before you go before the judge. And it's almost as if someone in the crowd's like, I know, right? I mean, these Galileans, did you hear about them? I mean, it's ridiculous. They need to repent, don't they? And it's almost like they're trying to, you can almost hear the conversation of the heat gets a little hot for the listeners. This call for repentance. So what's the easiest thing to do when the heat comes on you? It's past the buck, right? <laughs> it is, you know, Jesus is saying repentance, so to settle with your, the judge, the accuser before you go before the judge. All of these things, and it's getting hot. And so it's almost like, you know, you're right, Jesus. Did you hear about these people? I mean, it's terrible over there. These Galileans had all these things go wrong. And Jesus then it, he, it makes sense with where Jesus and his response, this sort of pushing off the call for repentance. He says, listeners, of, of his message here, that's not the point. Don't put the call for repentance upon all of those around you. The call to repent is upon you. Us. Me, absolutely. There is the call for repentance. And this is the direction that Jesus pushes them in. So the scenario that's brought in, I mean, it's a horrifying event. And what do we say about these kind of calamities when things like this happens? In this, in this instance, evidently Pilate, there were some Galileans that had come down and were offering sacrifices to the temple, which required killing the animal, and they would splatter the blood on the mercy. They would, there was all this, you can read about it in Leviticus, and there's all this uh, rules and the way that they, how they treated the blood. And evidently, these Galileans had shown up to present their sacrifices, and Pilate sends his henchmen in who evidently brutally murder these people, and then they're so brutally that their blood is splattered along with the splatters of their sacrifices. It's a gruesome thing that goes on. This is an incredible event. It's awful stuff. And so that, this is what's going on. This, this horrible event, what are we to think about something awful like this happening? And the second event is, is, is just a natural catastrophe. It's not... It's not undergoing someone else's evil like Pilate's, who we know to be a pretty gruesome man from other accounts. 
But these people evidently are walking along, most likely it's thought, the wall of Jerusalem near the pool of Siloam. And there probably was a tower there that just collapsed and it fell on people. Just a, a natural disaster, no explanation, no foul play. Just something happened, it crashed down and people were buried and they died. A catastrophe. And what are we to do with, with events like this? Both of these were harsh and hard events. And what are we to conclude or to take away from these events? Well, some people, as, as this group evidently did, they took these events to mean that those who died were especially deserving of the judgment of God. That's what they, they're like, that's right, they need to repent. Otherwise, uh, Pilate murders you like these Galileans. Or people would think, yeah, that's right, you better get right or else the Tower of Siloam, the wall is just going to crush you and you're done for. And they saw these natural catastrophes as the judgment of God. In our modern thinking, we would say that we have no clean water because the hand of God's judgment is against Southwest Iowa. Take that wherever you want to take it. I didn't say, I'm just saying that in this idea, that's what we would be saying. It's a common way to interpret it. You remember in Luke chapter, or John chapter 9, there's the blind man, man who's born blind. And the question to Jesus is, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That, that, was, their, that was their mentality. That wrong comes because of personal sin. And that evidently this man or his parents were worse sinners than others. And that's why he was born blind. And Jesus says, no, this is, this is for the glorifying of God. He, he corrects their thinking. But this is, this is one way to view why calamity comes. It is the judgment of God. And those who fall under you know, more harsh catastrophes are those who are more deserving of God's judgment than the rest. David Gooding, in his commentary, makes this observation a different viewpoint. It says, modern humanists, noting that atrocities and disasters often happen to good people, while thoroughgoing rogues escape, so calamity comes to good people, while really awful people seem to get off free, they conclude that the unfairness of it, the unfairness of it all, proves their contention that there is no real God. There's no justice there's no fairness because, look, sometimes great, fine people have calamities, die at too young of an age. Something awful happens to them and, you know, you, you hear about these stories all the time. And then you have people who are deplorable, who live um, just lives of scandal and sinfulness. And they live past 100 and seemingly have no consequences to their immoral behavior. And so the humanist says... Well, obviously, there's no fairness. There is no justice. There is no justice. Either you, people are concluding um, those who, they must have some secret sins and things gone wrong. That's why they came out of catastrophe or there is no fairness. But Jesus' Jesus's conclusion is different. Jesus, instead of asking why things go wrong, he says that we should all be warned by our own escape from the wrong. That it is a mercy that worse hasn't happened to us. Instead of asking why things go wrong, we should be warned that things haven't gone wrong for us. He says, no, I tell you, when you look at these calamities, these people who were murdered by Pilate, this tower falling on them, Jesus' takeaway is this. Not, not um, boy, they were bad off and they, they deserved it, but... 
how, not, and not why did that come to them, but how has that not come to me? That's Jesus' point. Repent. Repent, lest you all likewise perish. David Gooding goes on to say in his commentary that the wonder is not that some people are allowed to suffer atrocities and accidents, but that anyone is spared. That's the wonder. And that's what Jesus is highlighting. The wonder is not that some people are allowed to suffer atrocities and accidents, but that anyone is spared. Certain it is, and Christ solemnly affirms it twice, that unless we repent, we shall all perish, not necessarily in some earthly accident or atrocity, but under the wrath of an almighty God eternally. Moreover, the fact that we have not already perished is not because we are in any way better than people who have been swept into eternity by some atrocity or accident. Jesus doesn't want us to mistake the delay of the judgment of God. So the main idea from our text this morning is this. God's delay in judgment against sin is a limited season of grace for sinners to come to their senses, confess their sins, and confirm their salvation. God's delay in judgment against sin is a limited season of grace for sinners to come to their senses, confess their sins, and confirm their salvation. So what do we say about losing the water? We'll go back to where we started. What do we say about the losing of the water? And many things could be said, but one thing that should definitely fire inside of a Christian is the reality, I don't deserve a second of clean water. Honestly, I don't deserve a second's worth of clean water. God would be totally just to have evaporated the world of all of its water and blown it off into space somewhere and let humanity die because of its rebellion against him. It is a mercy this planet has water on it still. Why hasn't God done that? He hasn't done it. He, he hasn't done it not because sin isn't serious. So we, what happens is we take we take this idea. Well, God hasn't evaporated. We have clean water, and so obviously God's okay with how we are. No, what's going on in that? And the fact that blessings still come to us, that good things still happen to us, that we escape catastrophe at times. The reason why that happens is God is delaying His judgment for a season of grace, so that sinners can come to their senses. Everyone who doesn't have clean water, all of us who live with these things floating around, is to wake us up to the reality and the seriousness of sin. We are mortal. We will die. Judgment is coming. Do not think that just because judgment hasn't come to you yet, that it isn't coming. It is a season of grace, a limited season of grace, for sinners to come to their senses, confess their sins, and confirm their salvation. This is confirmed in passages like Romans chapter 2, verse 4, which tells us that sinners should not presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness... His his letting you escape calamity and catastrophe at times. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The fact that sinners get their next breath from God is a mercy. Is a mercy. And so incredible is this mercy that Jesus says, when we look around and see disaster, our most pressing question is not why them. The most pressing question is why not me? Why not me? How have I escaped? 
So there's a, a presupposition that's happening here that if you don't know, you won't get at all what I'm saying. There's a, there's a presupposition that undergirds all of this that if you don't know what I'm talking about, you, you, you don't understand anything that I'm saying. And the, the presupposition is this. We're all guilty sinners. We're all guilty sinners. By nature and by choice, we are sinners. Now, most people have no problem admitting they're sinful, that they've done wrong things. It's not, it's not that we don't have an easy time saying, of course I've messed up. Of course I've sinned. People are usually quite easy to confess themselves to be sinners. But the why, the why is not always agreed upon. For many the truth about themselves being sinners is that they is the the consequence of them they don't always do what they want to do they always want to do what is right but sometimes i have a whoopsie sometimes i you know i i miss the mark sometimes i i occasionally mess up but really i always want to do good and then and then sometimes i mess up so yeah you got me darren i'm a sinner and that's their concept of sin as though sin are some sorts of just little um outliers about who we really are. We're at our core, we're very good people. I occasionally, I occasionally make mistakes. But the picture from Scripture is quite opposite from that. We are, in fact, sinful to the core of our being. Total depravity is this doctrine. It spills to us from the Word of God. The reality is that you sin because you are by nature, by choice, a sinner. You sin because you are a sinner. It isn't that because you sin, now you become a sinner. That makes sense? You sin because at the core of who we are, we are by nature, Ephesians 2, children of wrath. We are born dead and in sin and trespasses. The real, this is the reality that makes the gospel so shocking. Because it isn't that God is rescuing well-meaning people who occasionally mess up. God rescues sinners who in their core are in full-on rebellion against Him. He rescues sinners whose only true motive is to sin and fight against Him. So the fact that God would pour out mercy upon sinners is astonishing. That's what Jesus is getting at. When you look at these events, you should be like... I can't believe I missed. I can't believe I've escaped this. Oh, God, have mercy on me. What is coming down on the world all around me is deserving of me. Yet I have escaped and repent, repent, turn to Christ. He rescues sinners whose only true motive is to sin and fight against him. So when it comes to the accusation that God's judgment falls on sinners, we have to admit two terrifying realities. It absolutely does. First, it absolutely does fall on sinners. And secondly, we are those sinners who deserve that judgment. This is why Jesus responds the way that he does to these incidents. Instead of judging whether what happened was right or wrong, or whether the sufferers were greater sinners than others, or more innocent than others, he charges that it should confront all of us with the undeniable reality of our own mortality and of our own coming judgment. And in light of that, Jesus commands the crowd and us by extension, repent. Repent. Do not delay. Repent now. He calls for their repentance and he calls for it now because God's delay in judgment against sin is not a limited is is a limited season of grace. 
God's delay in judgment against sin is a limited season of grace for sinners to come to their senses, to confess their sins, and to confirm their salvation. You can see this is the main idea when you read the parable, right? We go on down and we have this parable of the barren fig tree. We've got this urgency. To add urgency to his call for repentance, he tells this parable. And really the illustration is pretty simple, right? There's an owner and there's a vine dresser. The owner comes along, walks through his uh, vine, his, his vineyard, and there's a fig tree they've got growing somewhere. And it's been growing for three years, which... I'm not a fig tree expert, but evidently it's enough years for a fig tree to get established and produce some figs, and it doesn't. And the owner's like, this thing ain't working. It's, it's, it's stealing nutrients from the soil. My vines might as well have the, the, the nutrients of the soil. Get rid of the fig tree. And the vine dresser says, no, let's, let's give it a year. I'll, I'll do some work. I'll, I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. And then come back in a year. And then if it hasn't borne fruit by then, then we can go ahead and get rid of it. And then there the parable ends. We aren't told if the vine dresser's work succeeded or not. Isn't that weird? He doesn't really finish the parable. He says, there's this, these two men, they have a discussion about a fig tree. They seem to agree, okay, we'll come back in a year. He never returns to the parable. What happens to the fig tree? The point is not rather the fig tree produced the good fruit. The point is just continued from the previous conversation. The point is that this fig tree has a limited season of grace for it to come to its senses. <laughs> Repent of not bearing figs and get to bearing figs. That's the point of the parable. There, there may be a stay of execution for the tree, but its day is coming. And there is no way to hold it off forever. The fig tree has a limited season of grace to get to doing what it should do as a fig tree. Now, there's a definite application from this passage to the, the current um, audience that Jesus is speaking to. If you remember back to John the Baptist's ministry, there in Luke chapter 3, verse 9, he makes this statement. Remember, he's in the Jordan, and the Pharisees, and everyone's coming out. All of Jerusalem, um, Luke says, is coming out to hear John the Baptist. And he makes this statement to him. He says, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he's speaking there of the children of Israel specifically compared to this fig tree. That Jesus comes along, that he's, he's saying if, if Israel doesn't repent, the axe is laid to the root. They're going to be cut down and, and thrown into the fire. And Jesus comes along and seems to communicate in this parable a limited season, a continuance of grace. For what purpose? Not so that Israel can think, well, I guess we got away with it. Thank goodness we, didn't, we, we, we rejected the Messiah, but it's okay. No, it's a season of grace for what purpose? That they might come to their senses, confess their sin, and confirm their salvation, trusting in Christ. So Jesus comes along, con uh, communicates this extended season of repentance. But as the work of the gospel goes forward, as the message of the gospel goes out into all the nations, we hear the same call. Repent. Repent, trust in Christ. Repent that seasons of refreshing may come. It's not just those in Christ's day that needed to hear this call. It is every one of us. And I stress, it is every one of us. Every one of us. The Greek there for the word you, it means you. Okay? 
It's everyone. There's nothing complex to this statement. He's calling that everyone to repent. How seriously do you... This, this whole passage is not about, boy, look at our culture and look how messed up they are. And boy, we could, we could do a, a two or three year series about how messed up the world is. Jesus' point here is you. You. How seriously do you take your sin? What does it mean that you sin, don't repent, and get away with it sometime? The parable doesn't have an ending. It doesn't have a definite ending. We supply the ending. What happens to the fig tree? You are the one who answers that question. Aren't you not? You're the fig tree. We are this tree that is not bearing fruit, that is in rebellion, that is not going into, uh, living along the principles that they were created as a mongo day to glorify God. They're not glorifying God. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. The vine dresser comes along. How do you respond to the call for repentance? You give the answer to the parable. God's delay in judgment is a limited season of grace. And you can be sure that you will not escape judgment forever. Judgment is on its way. It's the whole point of this passage. It's heavy, I know. That's what he's talking about, though. The period of grace is a season for sinners to come to their senses. You will give an account for every single word you've spoken. There's a terrifying thought. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account... For every careless word they speak. This limited season of grace is a season for all of us to come to our senses. To come to our senses about our own sinfulness. To come to our senses and to repent. Once you see your sin for the serious offense that it is, do not protect it and hide it any longer. But confess it to God certainly. To other Mature Christians who are able to hear your confession and give you the gospel? Yeah. Confess it. Come to your senses. Lay your sin out in the light that God might, that it might come to the light so that you might confirm your salvation, that God is doing this work. This is a season to come to your senses, to confess your sinfulness, and to confirm your salvation. Repentance is a turning with hatred and disgust against, away from that sin that tempts you. John the Baptist says again, Luke 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So, why does Jesus press so hard? I mean, you know, I, I say and I mean it. I want this, that we gather for joy. We gather for joy. And what I want you to show up on a Sunday morning and walk out of the play, out of the, the, the church in the morning is authentic, real joy. Well, how do we get there from here, Darren? <laughs> this has been a little heavy for us to think about. Okay, I've got a season of grace to come to my senses or confess my sin, confirm my salvation. Where's the joy in this? Well, this is, this, what this does is it launches us into the true understanding of the gospel. Why does Jesus press so hard? And why do I press so hard out of this text this morning for repentance of sin? First of all is because sin is a reality. It doesn't do us any good to pretend like this doesn't exist. Why press so hard? Why talk about sin? Why tell people to repent? Why tell people to confess? It's a bummer. Why? Because it's real. Jesus speaks about it in very real terms. The reason why he press it is because it is real. God has a standard of righteousness. We're not even close to fulfilling it. 
And we're not just missing the mark. Sometimes we think, you know, the Romans uh, 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's like there's a bullseye out there and we're aiming up and we, we shoot the arrow and, oh, we're just a half... We're just a half inch off the mark. We just barely missed God's glory. That the meaning of that term, miss the mark, is more like the target's over here, and we've taken our bow and arrow, and we've shot in totally the other direction. We're not even close. We don't even hit in the same region as righteousness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're not just failing, like trying and failing. It's in, we, we do not want to glorify God. We want to glorify ourselves. We press so hard for repentance because the sinfulness of man is a reality and because the holiness of God is a reality. God is perfect in his righteousness and God is a just God. He is a just God. He must punish wrongdoing. None of us want to live in a world where there is no justice. None of us, no one wants to live in a world where there is no justice. And so we as sinners have no chance to stand in His presence because we are sinners. He's a holy God. Well, I haven't fixed anything yet, have we? Wait, I thought we were getting to the joy part. Why do we press so hard for the reality, for the repentance of sin? Because the gospel is true good news in the light of those realities. This is when the gospel becomes glorious. When we confess and admit, I am a sinner... That it is, it is amazing I got to take more than two breaths. What a mercy that God gave me a season of grace that I might come to my senses. That he might by his Holy Spirit, by his sovereign grace, call me to himself. That I might come to my senses, confess my sin, and confirm my salvation. The gospel becomes true good news in the light of these realities. At the cross, we see the perfect justice of God poured out. And at the cross, we see God remain just in giving penalty for sin. And yet at the same time, the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So where does it leave you this morning? We've got to wrap up. Where does it leave you? Where does it leave you? And I'll tell you that it leaves you this morning before a table made for remembrance, repentance, and restoration. The body and blood that we remember in the symbols of the bread and the juice, these are symbols of the work of Christ that washes repentant sinners of their guilt. We can boldly obey the command of Jesus this morning because there is forgiveness of sin. Come to your senses, sinner. Don't look out there at all the sin out there. Look right inside of yourself. All of these atrocities, all these hard things going on in the world... How have I escaped? Repent. Your judgment is on the horizon as well. Come to your senses, sinner. Confess your sin and confirm your salvation by walking then in the joy of the gospel. We have a Savior. We have a God who rescues sinner, sinners. Walk in the joy of the gospel, empowered and seeking to please the Savior in all that you do. Walking to please the Savior in all that you do. It's heavy. But we talk about, and when I talk about joy, I don't mean pats on the back and skips and singing with flower petals. I'm talking about the kind of joy that when life turns you upside down, it cannot take this joy from you. When that atrocity does maybe come your way through a diagnosis, loss of a loved one, some sort of horrible thing going on, I want you to have real joy that cannot be lost. And it is the joy that is found in the gospel, knowing that it has been a mercy that I've escaped any of this. 
And I am his. I am adopted into God's family by God's mercy and by the work of Christ alone. And in that, I find my joy. I pray that it be our joy as we come to the table this morning. Father, have your way in our hearts this morning. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that you rescue sinners. I thank you that though I am certainly deserving of your judgment, your son has stepped in and received my judgment for me. Father, this morning as we come to the table, may you find us sinners who have come to their senses in the light of their sinfulness, confessing them as sinful and trusting in the finished work of Christ for our reconciliation, redemption, and restoration to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.